0: Thank you. Unless Jamie got taller, let's put this down. Good morning. Well, we're all still here. Apparently uh, Harold Camping failed to read the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 where Jesus made very clear that when He comes. The timing of his coming, not even the angels know, nor does any human being know. Matter of fact, the son himself doesn't even know. It's a gift that the father will give to the son when he gives the son the kingdom. And then the father wants to surprise the son, so he will give to the son the kingdom. And only the father knows when that will be. Apparently Harold Camping forgot what Jesus said a second time in Acts 1-7. When Jesus said to the response, the question of the disciples, Lord, is this the end of the world? Is this going to be the kingdom? Is this what is going to happen? Remember, Jesus said, no man knows the times or the epics, for only the Father himself holds that. And so, here we are. (laughs) But I have to admit, it really did bother my youngest of my granddaughters, little Jocelyn. Tuesday, she asked her dad, why does the world have to end on my birthday? <laughs> but the good news is that she had her birthday, everybody was around to show up, and Father, who's a theologian, helped explain her through the uh, theological issue. <laughs> have you ever uh, brought up the uh, subject of death and polite company? Found it went over like a pregnant pole vaulter? I mean, what's interesting, what fascinates me is everybody seems to be interested in this concept of not death, but life after death. I mean, if it's a special on television, everybody watches it. Anybody writes a book about it, the books sell out. But you bring it up in informal conversation, and people just think you did something very offensive. They don't really want to talk about it. Francis Bacon once observed, quote, Men fear death as children fear to go into the dark. And so we spend most of our lives believing and pretending we're never going to die. And then someone you love, someone you care about does, and your own mortality slaps you across the face. And you begin to ask yourself some questions. See, it's the one thing, most likely, unless the Lord, if the Lord tarries, we're all going to experience, we're all going to experience death. It's like uh, one church father, Tertullian in the third century, wrote, quote, it is a poor thing for anyone to fear that which is inevitable, and yet people are terrified about it. They're terrified to talk about it. At least Woody Allen admitted, it's not that I'm afraid to die. He said, it's just I don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) The pagan philosopher Seneca quipped once, only Christians and idiots are not afraid to die. Only Christians and idiots are not afraid to die. Well, if I'm going to be sharing in a community of idiots... And, and, and my only mental deficiency is not being terrified to die, then you know, quite frankly, that's a departure from normalcy that I am more than happy to take. But um, are we idiots? Why, why wouldn't we fear death? I mean, are, are we idiots, or do we know something that is merely a dream to most But we happen to understand that dream is more than a dream. That dream is something that is true and something that is real. You see, the oldest book of the Bible, written by Job, Job's the first one to ask the question. He says in Job 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? There's the question. If I die, is there something after death? If a man dies, if a woman dies, will they live again? Job answers the question in the same book. In Job chapter 19, he says this in verse 24. He says that with an iron stylus and lead, they would be engraved in stone forever. He says, what I'm about to say, I hope everybody, whoever lives, gets to read this. He says, and as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the last day, he will take his stand on the earth. That's great for the Lord. We celebrated Easter. Jesus is alive and well. Yeah, but what about me? Next verse. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. From my flesh I will see God. Think this through with me. If it is true that at death life ceases, I mean you're born, you live, you die, and that's it. And most of the world believes that. If that's the case, my question is, well, then why even attempt to live life? Why try to do anything of value? Anything of self-sacrifice? Any benefit to anyone else? Why, if this is all that's going to be, then all you're going to be maybe is some kind of fond memory. Is that really enough to motivate you to sacrifice and give your life for others? I guess the real question is, is this. If there is life after death, and if there is a heaven, and we will live life in heaven or in the kingdom of God, what are we going to be doing? I mean, okay, we have our fire insurance. I'm going to heaven. Fine. Once you show up, what are you going to be doing? Are we going to be playing string instruments on nimble Cumulus? I'm talking about playing harps on the clouds. (laughs) What is it going to be like? If there is life after death, there is a heaven, and we're going to be there in the kingdom of God, what are we going to be doing? I don't want you to leave this place this morning without fully understanding exactly what that is. So if you will, we want to continue our study of the book of Philippians. Open your Bibles, and we're coming towards the end of chapter 1. Paul, when he writes this, is on death row. As far as he's concerned, there's a death sentence hanging over his neck. And and he talks about it right here at the beginning of the letter. Remember what he said last week in in, uh, uh, verse 20? He, He makes this statement about his life and his death. And he says this. I'm looking for Philippians. In verse 20, Paul says, According to my earnest expectation and and hope that I should not be put to shame in anything, and that he says that with all boldness may Christ Jesus, even now, so as always be exalted In my body, whether in life or in death. It's like Paul stops for a moment and and reflects on the situation and reflects on, I want Christ exalted in my life, whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead. And then he reflects about his own death. And that's what this next paragraph is all about. He's reflecting on what he just said. And he says, You know, it's a win win. Look at the confidence in verse 21. Paul says, For me, for to me, to live is Christ. And to die, well, that's gain. No, I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit suicidal to me. I mean, is Paul a little depressed here? I mean, coming to the end of his ministry, doesn't know what's going to happen. And there he is under house arrest or in prison and reflecting on his death. And he just kind of says, You know, I just want an escape out of here. Is this really suicidal? But doesn't sound like it because he says with boldness, for me, to me, to live is Christ. And notice what he says here. He says, to me, I'm convinced. This is my belief. That to me, to live is Christ, but to die is, is gain. Now what does he mean to live is Christ? That's one of those phrases you can go ahead and put in your refrigerator. If you're a little radical, you can have a little tattoo on your foot with this one. You know, to live is Christ. What are we talking about? You know, we, 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 Christian, we speak Christianese. It's a language most people don't understand. If you don't believe it, ask your non-Christian friends. They'll tell you you speak some weird language called Christianese. But you need to tell them, we don't even understand half of it. So when we say, to live is Christ. Yeah. Mm. What are we talking about? And what Paul is talking about, he says, I have one ambition the driving force in my life, the center, the background, all my choices, one question, will it please Christ? That's what it means for me to live is Christ. Everybody else, get in line. Because everybody has expectations. Everybody wants you to please them. They've got all kinds of ideas on what you can do to make them happy. And Paul just says, my life is simplified. I am all about pleasing Christ First. And in my pleasing Christ, if that pleases anyone else, that's great. If it doesn't, I am so sorry. But my life is Christ. And that is to please, before I make a decision, before I go somewhere, before I purchase something, anything I do, I want to ask or answer one question, will this please Christ first? And he says, and to die, well, that's Gain? Gain? This word gain means to have an advantage over someone else. See, the believer, death actually has an advantage to them that is not so to an unbeliever. To an unbeliever, death has no advantage. But the one who who follows Jesus Christ, he says, death has an advantage, a gain. I was with some folks talking about the new technologies on extending life. Boy, what about what? Five, seven years? They say this nanotechnology should be employed. Uh, that's where you have these little tiny machines. I read one article. that's great. Little machine they put in your blood system, and they're going to eat up little fat cells. Won't that be great? But they'll have these other machines doing other things. They'll have little lasers and they'll fix parts of your body from inside. Nanotechnology will extend life to 120, 150 years, they say. Cloning replacements, parts. And they're not talking about the controversy on cloning isn't about we're going to clone people. No, no, no. They're talking about cloning parts. Cloning new hearts and lungs and livers and kidneys. So you'll be able to get new parts. That will extend life. Cryonics. Well, if you're sick and we can't figure out how to fix you now, we'll put you in a deep freeze, and when we figure it out, we'll defrost you. (laughs) I'm not joking. This is science. Uh, They're talking about genetic modification. And and again, through genetics, a wonderful thing to be able to modify things, extend life. The only trouble is that um, the more I read, the more I debate, the more I discuss this thing, no one's talking about extending youth. No one's talking about extending the teenage years, which were the fun ones. They're all talking about extending what? The old age, which is not that much fun anyway. So I personally, not really into this. Now, what Paul goes on to say is in verse 22 and 23. Paul says, but if I am to live on in the flesh... Well, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and, and I don't know which to, to choose. But I am hard-pressed, hemmed in from both sides, both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. has the advantage. Now, Paul says that he's hard-pressed. Literally, hemmed in on both sides to depart and be with Christ is far better. This word depart is used of soldiers. Soldiers basically breaking camp to move to another assignment. This word depart is used for ships when they are loosed from their mooring to set sail to go somewhere else. Do you understand what he's saying to depart and be with Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first seven verses, Paul says, this body we live, it's a tent. And when this tent is taken down, We don't cease to exist, but he says, we will have a home. And that's what he says in chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. We walk by faith, not by sight. Don't you know, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Present with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 to 24 says, don't you know, we are moving to Mount Zion, to the holy Jerusalem that inhabits the Father, the Son, and all believers who've gone before us, who are alive and well, there in the new Jerusalem waiting for us. In John chapter 11, Jesus loses a good friend, Lazarus. He heard that Lazarus was 6th did didn't do anything about it. Then now he knows he's dead. He takes four days to get to the funeral. He's late. Martha, one of the sisters of Lazarus, she was really ticked. What was she, about 230 pounds, six far? I don't know. But she goes to the edge of the village, and she's ready to take Jesus on. She's not happy. And that's when Jesus said in John eleven twenty four 24 and 25, he says, Martha, Martha, don't you know I am the resurrection and the life? He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies. Martha, do you believe this? For whoever believes in me shall never die. Jesus on the cross, Luke's account, medical doctor. In Luke 23, Jesus with the two numbskulls on either side mocking him. Finally, the one brightens up. And he says, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Now, when you're on the cross after being scourged, you're being crucified, you're dying, you don't blow smoke, do you? And remember the first words out of Jesus' mouth? Today, today, today you will be with me in paradise. The night before he was going to be crucified, all of his men really thought he was going to be the warrior Messiah. As Moses brought ten plagues to deliver the people from Egypt, Jesus, the Messiah, if he is, he'll bring ten plagues against Rome. And he'll get us away from the bondage of Rome. And so that's why the disciples were arguing about positions in the kingdom and dignity. And Jesus says, guys, 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 I'm going to die. I'm not here to start a political revolution, but a spiritual one that will go on for thousands and thousands of years. And he sees that they're bummed out. He begins Romans 14 by says, guys, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you with me, you may be also. You see, if this is all true, to depart and be with Christ, absent from the body, present with the Lord, well then, why are we not giving Kevorkian a call? I mean, there are certain days, let's fix the economic problem, let's just get out of this place. If that's waiting for us, going to meet Christ. So let's call Kevorkian, well, well, maybe before you do the phone call. Paul says, read verse 24. Yet, Paul says, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. For what? He had said, fruitful labor. We're doing something in this first gift, this first gift of life that God has given to us. Apparently, something that has serious implications about there. We're doing something here that's going to determine something there. So, yeah, well, I, 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 I know. I'm, I'm going to heaven. Is this all? This is all to you? Is fire insurance. It's all about. Well, I get to go to heaven. Yes. And what are you going to do there? Once you're there, apparently what we're accumulating here in this life has something to do with what we're going to be doing then. That's why John in 2 John verse 8 says, Now watch yourself that you do not lose what you have accomplished and being accomplished in you so that you receive a full reward. This is a win-win, but look at the confidence Verse 25, Paul says, He says, and I'm going to troll my eye here. He says, and I'm convinced of this. I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress. He says, and 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 for your faith, so that you with proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Interesting. Paul believed that he was going to be around because he had more to... It's almost like a resume. He had more to add to his resume, to what he was doing in this life that has something to do with what he's going to be doing in the next. We do have evidence that Paul was released. Most likely he was under house arrest. He is released. And most likely returns to Philippi, this wonderful church that supported him when he was in bondage. But he would be arrested a second time and executed. Paul, being a a Roman citizen, they would not scourge or crucify him. Isn't it interesting, to the Roman legal mind, it was more merciful to be fed to the lions than to be crucified. Some people wonder, well, then why did God permit Jesus to go through such a horrific crucifixion? I know why. I don't know how many people in my 40-plus years of ministry have told me, well, God can never forgive me of this. Well, I've been married three times. God can never forgive me of that. God, I did this. I said this. I thought that. God could never forgive me. Listen, When God permitted his son to go through the most horrible abuse any human being could ever do to innocence, and even with that, Jesus from his own lips would say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. I don't care what you've done or what you could ever do, you could never do anything worse than what was done to Jesus that day on the cross. And Jesus declared... Even the extent of God's forgiveness would forgive that. God permitted his son to go through that so we would know the extent of the provision of God's forgiveness. But that's another sermon. Daryl, where are you? Back to this. Well, Paul knows he's going to be executed. He will beheaded. He'll have his head chopped off. It will go quickly. Quickly. But he's in prison waiting for this, and in his last will and testament, literally, it's the last letter of the 13 letters he writes, his last will and testament. It's titled 2 Timothy because he writes it to one of the most precious spiritual children he had. And he ends it with basically this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, and it doesn't seem to be panicked about his oncoming death. He, He says this, but... He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And my time of departure, there's the word, my time to depart and be with Christ has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future. Paul, you have no future. You're going to die. You're going to get your head chopped off. Paul says, in the future. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. You see, the Bible isn't silent about life after death. Matter of fact, probably the wisest man who ever lived. And you know I'm talking about Solomon. Solomon ends. You know, Solomon kept a diary. At the end of his life, he wrote a journal of all the things he learned. And and, and he ends, here's the wisest man who ever lived, he ends his journal describing the moment of death. In In Ecclesiastes, and by the way, we call it Ecclesiastes so nobody would ever read his journal. Especially the way it begins. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Myrtle, let's read another book. But this is his journal. And he ends his journal in chapter 6, notice verse 6. He says, remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel of the cistern is crushed. He's describing poetically that last breath you take on this planet. Back in the desert days, they would draw water by tying a a rope to a pitcher, put it down to the well, pull it well up with the cistern wheel, and then bring life-giving water. The picture here, that last moment where the rope is broken, the vessel is crushed, the wheel doesn't work, and you try to pull up the last breath. He's talking about the moment of your death. And notice what he says: "Then the dust will return to the earth as it was. and the spirit will return to God who gave it." The Bible's not quiet about this. the part to be with Christ. There's life after death. there's, there's a heaven. But the question still is, this dream is true. This dream will be true. But once I'm there, what am I going to be doing? I, um, I teach a president's class for the seminary here at Scott's the Bible on Monday nights. And we've gone through all the books no one wants to teach. So we've gone through Ecclesiastes. And we went through Sermon on the Mount. Went through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to do the book of Job uh, next year. And again, Monday nights starting mid October come. We have about 500 folks show up. But it's interesting, we were doing a Sermon on the Mount this last year, and, and this is the longest recorded Sermon of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. I remember coming to chapter 6, and it was very interesting. Jesus is talking about the three basic expressions of worship by the Jews in these days, the giving money to the poor, praying, fasting. But at the end of each one, He says something fascinating, So he says, now, when you give to the poor, don't let everybody know about it. Give it in secret. For your Father in heaven who sees it will repay you. Then he talks in verse 6. And when you pray, don't pray so everybody knows you're praying. But he says, pray in secret. For if you do so, your Father sees you. And it says, and your Father in heaven will repay you. And then in verse 18... When he talks about it, when you fast, don't show everybody else you're fasting. And you do it in secret. He says, and your Father in heaven will repay you. What is this? He will repay you. Pay you what? I want you to turn to Luke chapter 6 because you're looking at me funny. Then do it yourself. Look at Luke chapter 6. I want you to tell me what does verse 35 through 38, what do these verses mean? These are the words of Jesus. They're in red. Here they are. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, But love your enemies. Oh, great. What a great way to start. What a downer. Well, let's read on. But love your enemies, do good, and, and, and lend. In other words, live out your Christian life. And and, and indeed, love. Even the people hard to love. And do deeds of goodness. And and lend, be generous. Share with others. He says, expecting nothing in return. He says, and your reward will be great. What reward? Verse 38, he says, now give, and it will be given to you. Of good measure, pressed down. Uh, shaken together, uh, flowing over into your lap. For whatever measure you deal out to others, it will be measured to you. What's he talking about? Apparently, Paul didn't hesitate about this at all. Matter of fact, Paul put it this way in his first letter to Timothy. In First Timothy chapter 6, Paul gives instructions to young pastors... And he says this in in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says now in verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to put their hope in the uh, transference of money. He says, but God gives you all things to enjoy. Watch this. Instruct them. Okay, here I go. Instruct them to do good, to, to be rich in good works. To be generous, ready to share, storing up for yourself the treasure. the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that you may take hold of that which is life, indeed. What? What treasure? Can't be money because that they paved the streets with gold. Who needs money? Now, we understand there's going to be some reward based on what we do in this life. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, because of time, let me just tell you. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, don't you know when you build, build upon the foundation, which is what Jesus Christ did for you, your salvation, you're a child of God, you're a son and a daughter, now get to work. Remember Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, As anyone should boast, but you are God's workmanship created unto good works. So get going with it, he says, for the reward. Because he talks about some of the things you do, you do it for yourself. And that's okay, but that's wood. Hey, straw, it'll be tested, burned up. You get no reward because you already got your reward. It was for you. But those things, you did not receive anything in return. It was for others, sacrificially for others says, oh, now that's gold, silver, precious stones. When that's tested by fire, that remains. And Paul says, and you shall receive a reward. A reward. What, what is this reward that we get and we use in heaven, in the kingdom of God? I think I know what it is. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, if we persevere in the faith and we're faithful to Christ. We shall reign with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, what are you suing each other for? Don't you know that you shall have authority over nations? Don't you know you shall rule and have authority over angels? Well, yeah, I heard about that, but who could believe that? It's in the Bible! Revelation chapter 2, verse 25-26, Jesus says, whoever overcomes with me, shall rule the nations with me. Revelation 3, 21, for you shall sit on my throne as I sit on my Father's throne. Revelation 5, 10, and God put together a generation of priests who shall reign with Christ forever. Revelation 20, verse 4, you shall reign with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 6, you shall reign with Christ. The Bible ends the last chapter in the Bible. Revelation 22, Jesus says, Behold, I come, and my reward is with me. The reward is our vocation. What assignment, what responsibility that we will have in heaven. And what's remarkable, with the vocation will come the capacity to carry it out. There will be different vocations, thus there will be different capacities to do so. You see, I'm the son of a butcher, and it bugs me that most of you are smarter than I am. I just work harder. And it bothered me that my parents didn't hold me back two years so I could be the same size as the other football players. Instead of having to play tennis before it was masculine, it's not fair. There's already different capacities. That produced different vocations for different people. If it's true in this world, why would you not think it's gonna be true in the next? But that one's not gonna be based on DNA and biology. That one's gonna be based on my resume, on my faithfulness now. See, the story Jesus shares in John 19, fascinating. He calls 10 servants together, gives each one of them 10 minas. A mina is about 100 days of wage. So he gives each of the ten a hundred days wage. Now go out and he says, do business. One comes back and says, I took the, the ten minas, and I produced ten more. And the Lord said, well done. You were faithful in little. I'll put you faithful in much. Get What was the reward? Authority over ten cities. It was authority. It was vocation. Equipped with the function to be able to carry out the vocation. The other one came and said, well, Lord, I produced five out of the ten. And the Lord said, good, you've been faithful little, faithful in much. I will give you not ten cities, five. Less authority, less responsibility in the vocation, less capacity, and yet same honor. Remember the third one came up and said, well, you know, you're a hard guy. I didn't do much with it. Oh, yeah, he had his fire insurance. That's great. And Jesus says, yeah, you're my servant, but you're worthless. You are absolutely worthless. There's going to be a remarkable diversity. But we will not all be rewarded the same. And based on our resume, you know, there is a biblical basis for the concept of resume. It's right here in Luke 19. Faithful in little, faithful in much. God is evaluating the character of our faith by our faithfulness in this life on what he can entrust to us in the kingdom, in heaven. What positions? What vocations? I always wondered how come the angels in Isaiah 6 closest to worshiping the Father got six wings when other angels had four. Others had two. Others have none. Could it be, Bible's over here, could it be two to cover their eyes, two to fly, two to cover their feet? Greater vocation, greater capacity to carry out the vocation. That's the treasure. That's the treasure. And he's evaluating our character now. Same thing, 2 Corinthians 9:8. The promise of God there, Paul says, that God will give all sufficiency in everything. He will give you an abundance of, For the purpose of every good work you do. If he does it in this life, mark it, he'll do it in the next. We will not all have the same capacity. And we will not all have the same vocation. And it will all depend on what did we do here. What kingdom business did we invest in? Our life, our money, our talents, our abilities. Do we fear death? No, not at all. Well, are we ready to leave the earth? No, 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 not at all. Psalm 139 says, The days ordained for me were already established. I'm not going to die one day soon, but God has given a certain amount from your birth to your death. I'm leaving all my money to my kids. Excuse me. From your birth to your death. It's not what you leave to your kids. It's not what you do for your kids. It's what you do for the kingdom. And you have that window to demonstrate your character of your faithfulness to him that will determine your vocation and your capacity forever. That's the dream come true. We're all building resumes. It reminds me of a Sunday school teacher teaching about 10 little boys. How many want to go to heaven? All the boys, yeah, I'll go to heaven. How many want to go to heaven? I going to go to heaven. You know, we tried to hype up the kids third time. How I many want to go to heaven? I want to go to heaven. Well, all three, except for one little kid sitting right there. He didn't raise his hand, didn't say a word. Made the teacher really concerned. He said, son, don't you want to go to heaven? He said, sure I want to go to heaven. Well, now, why didn't you say so and raise your hand? Says, oh, I thought you are getting together a busload for today. You know, the point being is, is, is this. What we do now, it's sacred. And whatever vocation, it's sacred. For me to live as Christ, please Christ first. Life, death, advantage, gain. Yeah, the good news is, um, yeah, we're still here because we still have time to complete our resumes. Heavenly Father, I would pray that we would let this message of truth this dream coming true, anchor into our souls. Lord, that we might remember this is our value system. This is what drives us. This is who we are as your sons and daughters in Christ. Father, we want you to be pleased. And Father, we're going for the reward because it's a way of trusting and loving you. As we come to the end of the service, we're going to take an offering now. Relax, it's not for Phoenix Seminary. I have pure pure motives here. Although after the service, I will be over by our table begging over there. What I'm really interested in, those of you who would be interested in taking classes, I'm really here to hook students. That's what I really want. And after the service, I'll be there. This offering is the elder's benevolence. This is the elder's offering, and this has been totally designated this offering to go to scholarships for our student camps, for the children's camps. And I'll tell you, if you heard anything this morning, whatever you give in this offering, this is going to change and touch the life of a child. 1966, I am 16 years old. I go to a camp. I come to Christ. And my life has belonged to him ever since. You don't know. You can count the number of seeds in an apple. But you can't count the number of apples in those seeds. And every time you invest in people's lives, you're seeding it. God only knows how he's going to use this. You give as God guides you to do so. And let's listen to the three possible new elders. Well, let me start by saying what an honor and privilege it is to accept the nomination of coming back on the elder board here at Scottsdale Bible Church. As I reflected on the nomination committee's request, I thought about what's really important to me, particularly at a Bible-based church like Scottsdale Bible. I really believe it's important that as leaders that we help our worshipers understand their unique spiritual gifts, talents, and passions, and help plug them into the church so we can advance the kingdom together. Over 30 years, I've come to understand that my spiritual gifts and talents are in the area of leadership, administration, and strategic thinking. And so I believe I can help Jamie and the rest of the leadership team help move our church forward as we advance the kingdom in the community and around the world. Thank you for this offer.
1: The reason I accepted the nomination to be an elder at Scottsdale Bible was I've been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of praying, and some of it goes back to a couple of years ago, when there was an opportunity to vote for elders in the church. My wife kind of nudged me and said, Hey, I think you'd be great at that. And then, in, in addition to that, a couple of guys in our small group suggested that I'd be a, a real good fit for that. At that point in time, my response was, If that's something that God wants for me in this lifetime, then He'll make that opportunity available. And now that the opportunity has actually come, I've been praying about it, I'm excited about it, but I'm also a little scared about it. One of the reasons is because when you sit back and think about what the Bible says an elder needs to be, and also uh, the description of an elder, that's actually kind of daunting. But as I look back in my life, I just see what God has done. And when I've put my focus on him and recognize who he is and how big he is, and then recognize who I am and how small I am, I can see the things that God is doing in my life And I think one of the things he wants me to do is not only be a servant leader in our home, not only starting that with my wife and then with our daughters, but he wants me to be a servant leader in our community. And I also think that he wants me now to be a servant leader within our church. Uh, So I'm excited to serve. I think that this is quite an honor and I'm just excited about what God is gonna do.
2: Well, I don't think anyone really wants to be an elder. It's a question of whether you're willing to serve and whether you'll be submissive to God's call to be an elder. This will be my second time on the elder board. And the first one was quite quite frankly, one of the highlights of my life. And it was because I had the opportunity to see on a very frequent basis why God had put me there. And it's it's a, just a wonderful thing when you can, you can look at a situation and go, oh, well, that's why God has me here. And you can really feel like you're part of his will. And so when Corey called and, and asked if I'd be willing to serve again, for me, it was an easy decision. That, that decision was made 41 years ago when I became a Christian. It's just part of the deal. When you're in God's church, you serve in God's church. And it really doesn't matter what the job is. It's just what God calls you to do. And that's what you need to be you know, open to and listen to and, and just be constantly looking for His will in your life. And that's where you're going to serve most effectively. It's, it's like when Isaiah was uh, being talked to by God and, and God said, you know, who will I send and who will go for us? Isaiah looked around and realized God was talking to him. And when God's talking to you, it's important that you answer.
0: So let me encourage you, if you are a member of Scott's Bible Church over the age of 18, uh, be sure to vote. If you're not a member, repent, become a member. Here or some local church, identify with a local fellowship that's being your church home. But if you are a member, then I encourage you to vote as you leave to affirm as God leads you uh, these three men. You know, the bookstore has the name uh, Walk Worthy comes from the benediction that I would give for the 25 years that I was here as senior pastor. And that really comes from what Paul said in the book of Ephesians and Colossians. Walk worthy of the high calling to which God has called you to. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We're still here.